Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Generally, on Easter Sunday, everybody's dressed nicely. People that don't normally wear anything but corduroy with holes in it, like Lucas, show up in a suit. And uh, you might be confused by this. You might think that this indicates that all of us are clean. All of us think right thoughts. All of us are holy. All of us do not sin. None of us sin. And that our appearance is what our hearts are. But I think it's very important to remember that the reason the resurrection is precious to us is because the resurrection is the final triumph over sin. And so to the degree that we know our sin, we are able to rejoice on this day. To the degree that we don't know our sin, we are unable to rejoice on this day. It's very, very important that we also note that in a day when we wish that everything were good news, the reason that we have the most important chapter of Scripture in terms of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, is that there was a denial of the resurrection in the Corinthian church. And so the wonderful exposition, the wonderful opening up by the Apostle Paul of the fact of Christ's resurrection, we have this account because of the attack in the church on the doctrine of the resurrection. I love the expression whistling in the dark when I, um, well, I shouldn't really speak of the past tense, probably still today. There are certain things I do that are whistling in the dark. And... Uh, you may not think adults do it if you're a child. You may think you're the only one that lies in bed wondering if there's a snake under your bed. Um, but grown-ups wonder if there are snakes under their bed also. If you want to know whether it's true, when your mother's sitting calmly at night someplace and thinks no one's around, sneak up on her and grab her. <laughs> and listen to her scream, and you know that she lives with thoughts of snakes under her bed. We are, as adults, afraid of things that go bump in the night. And to hide our fear of those things, we adults whistle in the dark. We try to cover up our fear of the night by adopting a devil-may-care, nonchalant, and cool posture. And we whistle because we don't want anyone to know that grown-ups get scared. And one of the places where there's an awful lot of whistling in the dark is in the presence of death. Death scares people. In fact, death scares everyone. Doctors and nurses and friends and relatives and especially pastors, though, hear lots of blustering behavior as death draws near. When I went in the ministry, I remember very clearly a man and his wife, and I've told you of them before, where he was dying of congestive heart failure, and his wife would sit out in the waiting room outside the ICU, the intensive care unit, while he was in there dying, gasping for breath. She spent no time when I was there in with him. And when I talked to him, I asked him if he was afraid to die. And he said, I'm not afraid to die. And of course, I knew it wasn't true, but he was hard-hearted to the very end. He wanted no talk of spiritual things. He wanted no talk of the blood of Christ, no talk of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted to go into the darkness 
pristine in his manliness. And to him, his manliness consisted of denying that there was anything scary coming up. He was whistling in the dark. Woody Allen is maybe a little bit more honest, who says, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But there are times when we get a glimpse of the real picture inside the hearts and minds of even the most disgustingly self-assured men. Take, for instance, Donald Trump. Donald Trump was interviewed by somebody with the Chicago Tribune a number of years ago, and they talked about his yacht, his yachet. They talked about his business, his money, and every subject was really about his ego. And then at the very end of the interview, as the interviewer was leaving him, she asked at the very end, what do you think about death? And this is what Trump said. He said, no, I'm fatalistic, but I protect myself as well as anybody can. I prepare for things. <laughs> think about that. I prepare for things, things like death. I prepare for things, but ultimately we all end up going, no, I don't believe in reincarnation heaven, or hell. But we go someplace. Do you know, I can't for the life of me figure out where. And that's the end of the interview. So what is death? Is it the end or is it the beginning? Is it to be feared or is it to be embraced? What is death to you? Something you try to put out of your mind? And for those who belong to Jesus, how different is your thought about death because you believe in Jesus? When you lost your father or your mother, did you say goodbye forever or did you say see you there? One of the great privileges of my life in the pastorate was being present at the death of Josie Dykstra. The whole Dykstra clan was a wonderful inspiration. Uh, so many gifts to me as a pastor through that family. Anyhow, Joy, Josie was probably, I'm going to guess, 94 years old, somewhere around that. And Josie was probably 6263, straight absolutely straight and I think he was her I think he must have been her um, he was her brother yeah that makes sense Sam Westra and Sam was about 6'6 six, six. and uh, then Chuck and Sharon Dykstra were in and she was dying she was Dying in the place that I hope most of us will be able to die, which is at home in a bed with our loved ones around without all the officious white-clothed apparatus. And she was lying in bed dying, and Sam, it had gotten towards dusk, and Sam had a limitation on his uh, license that he couldn't drive after dark because of the failure of his eyes. 
Sam drove a little uh, Plymouth Omni Horizon. You remember those things? And, you know, he gets this huge man, and he'd, like, fold down into this tiny car. And he got his first speeding ticket when he was 92 years old. (laughs) And I got a ticket the same week. And when I said to him, Sam, you and I on the same week, he was furious because he'd gone, and for me, it was like, (laughs) you know, no big deal, you know, to Sam. (laughs) I shouldn't have brought up him getting a ticket. So he was over by Josie's bed, and he had to go home. It was getting dark. So he leaned over, and he kissed his sister, and he said, See you there. It was a beautiful thing. Sam was a godly man. I could tell a lot of stories about Sam Dykstra, and Josie was a godly woman. I remember when she, I first entered the ministry, and she wrote me a letter telling me that I needed to preach on the minor prophets and the judgment and wrath of God. Oh, man. Sam, um, one of the things that was most encouraging to me about Sam was that when I went to visit him, I found he had a large print Bible, and when I looked at the edge of the pages, they were absolutely black from use. Sam's wife had gone into the nursing home, and she'd gotten so intellectually, she didn't know him anymore, but people in town said they could set their watches by Sam every day going, driving to visit her in the nursing home. And when he got there, you know what he would do? He would sit there and he would brush her hair. She didn't know who he was. He'd brush her hair. And so that day, seeing Sam say goodbye to Josie Dykstra with all of the Dykstras around in that bedroom, it was a wonderful, wonderful gift to me. I'll never forget it. And Sam looked at her and Sam said, see you there. And I wonder, is that the faith you have? I wonder if you've had the privilege of saying goodbye to a loved one. And when you did... What did you say to them? Did you say, see you there? Certain, certain faith of Sam and Josie Dykstra. They knew that their Redeemer lived and is alive. Your baby who died, did you say with King David after the tears had all been shed, I'll meet you in the presence of the Lord. He won't come to me, but I will go to be with him. And maybe this morning you are facing death's hideous face, either your own or someone else. And a cold and awful dread has seized you. Maybe because of age or disease, you know that you will not live much longer. And so what do you say at that time? What do you cling to? What is your hope? Many of us who belong to Jesus Christ it's sad to say, have the same fears as the world when we prepare to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. We have faith, we believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. And so on this Easter morning, we turn to our risen Lord and ask him to show us where we may turn for hope, for assurance that all those we love who are dead are dead in Christ and are not gone forever. That our loved ones who are dead are not lost to the cosmic oblivion of a Big Bang universe, but have only gone ahead of us and are now resting in the presence of the Lord. 
1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read the whole way through to verses 28. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) I just love that statement. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know what he is. He's filthy. He's sinful. But the grace of God is working within him. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep... For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, just a minor note there at the end, but at the end you kind of got weary, didn't you? Because at the end it seemed like it was a conundrum, a riddle, right? You realize at the end there you have one of the many places in Scripture that point out the lie of feminism? You know that feminists say that Jesus is only subordinate to his Father when he was here in an incarnate form? 
Only here on earth is Jesus subordinate to his Father. What do you see there? You see that Jesus is equal to God and yet subordinate to him. When? In the future, in the past. It's no threat to the equality of man and woman for woman to be subjected to man. But if it is, then we have to get rid of the subjection of Christ to God. And so you just see all through Scripture that Scripture is doctrine. Scripture's words. Words have meanings. And those meanings should be precious to us if we don't want to be like everybody else, tossed by every wind of doctrine back and forth, back and forth. Now here we have in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians the theme of the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he starts the chapter out by saying, Listen up, brothers. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. And so here we have the gospel. And the gospel consists of three things. That Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus was buried, and third, that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And the whole rest of the chapter is concerned with this third part of the gospel with which you and I, that you and I have believed and that today we believe, if we are Christians, that Christ did rise from the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul proves this with a number of things, even going to the point of saying that 500 of the brothers at the same time saw Jesus. Paul says that Jesus appeared to him also. Beginning with verse 12, Paul starts to address a problem that had grown up in that church in Corinth. There were some among them in the church who didn't believe in life after death. According to verse 12, they were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? These brothers in Christ that Paul's referring to allowed that somehow, in some way, Jesus rose from the dead. And today we might hear them saying something like, you know, Jesus is alive. But they had no true, no real hope of, no real faith in life after death. I imagine at this point that this seems strange to you. How could people say they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and at the same time, disbelieve in the resurrection of the dead. Well, we don't precisely know the doctrinal error that led them down this path. The Apostle Paul doesn't tell us where this error came from. But today, there are many who claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of the risen Lord Jesus, who nevertheless have an entirely this-worldly and materialistic perspective. They believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the same way a doting mother or father believes in Santa Claus for the sake of their little children. Well, of course there's a Santa Claus, honey. If there weren't a Santa Claus, where do you think we'd get all our presents? There are many people who believe the resurrection only as a myth akin to the Santa Claus myth, and they're enough of a gentleman or lady to never publicly acknowledge their faith is fake. But press them to speak candidly, and the truth will out. Some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead. 
And so also in Corinth, there was a contingent of people in the church who disbelieved in life after death. And although they claimed to believe in Jesus' resurrection, they perhaps believed that the resurrection promised to each of us in Christ is a sort of cosmic resurrection, a sort of spiritual resurrection, a new life in Christ here on earth. And so today there are those who look at the hope of a life after death as a cop-out, as a weak salve for the wounds of the timid hearts of those who aren't quite strong enough to live a bold and courageous life here on earth, fighting against injustice and seeking to bring in the kingdom of God here on earth. I'll never forget being at General Assembly, the Presbyterian Church USA, trying to get the people there to stop saying that God approves of the slaughter of unborn children, abortion. I'd go every year and try to get them to stop saying that this was an act of faithfulness before God. And one of the men that was most evil, uh, one day I was talking to him on the exhibit floor, and it's at a certain point in talking to him, and he would have been an elder or a pastor, I don't know which it was, He was the son of missionaries to Korea, wonderful tradition of missionaries to Korea who are Presbyterians. And he was probably 70 years old at the time. And after talking to him, it became evident to me that there was absolutely no fear of God in him, none. And so I said to him, I won't say his name, but I said to him, what about heaven and hell? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you believe in any afterlife? Because I suppose a man could get used to God not showing himself to him here on this earth. But what about the judgment? And he looked at me and using using an expletive, he said very loudly in front of, everybody around us. He said, I am sick of that pie in the sky by and by expletive. And this was a man who had been set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer to shepherd the flock of God. Make no mistake about it, behind much of the error that we see today around us, Much of that error is promoted by men who have been set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer to the care of the flock of God. And much of their error is that they have turned away from the coming judgment and have no fear of God and no fear of death and no fear of judgment. And so there may have been some in the Corinthian church who were sort of cosmic about it, You know, resurrection is a spiritual concept, but what's really important is that we take action here today to bring in the kingdom of God. What we need to do is go to Haiti and go to Africa and adopt children, and and that's what the kingdom of God is. God has a preferential option for the poor. Now, it sounds good because God does have a preferential option for the poor. It sounds good because Jesus said, inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. 
but does this mean that there is no coming judgment? Does this mean that the way that we stand before God is dressed in our own righteousness? But God, I, I adopted 10 children from Ethiopia. But God, I, I did big things for you in Haiti. And so maybe in that church there were those who spiritualized the resurrection, spiritualized it, all right? On the other hand, it may have been a philosophical objection that they got from Plato, who said that the body's only a prison and a tomb. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. Why after death, when spirit has finally escaped the bonds of flesh, would anyone want to bring flesh back? Why would we ever seek the resurrection of that spiritual prison Death had finally made us able to break away from. Why force spirit back into the grave of flesh? And as I read that to you, I don't actually think there's probably one person who's seduced by that today because I think in America today, we are entirely materialists. But that could have been another option. You know, back then, there was no doctrine that caused Christians more of the world scoffing and scorn than this precise thing, that at the heart of the gospel was the resurrection, not of the spirit, not of the soul, but of the body. That was the greatest scandal. We see Paul in Athens speaking to the oh-so-sophisticated Areopagus. And he says this. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by what? By raising him from the dead. And then it says that these sophisticated philosophers of Athens responded in this way. It says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead. The early church father, Tertullian, in his prescription against heretics, just says parenthetically, quote, the denial of the restoration of the body is taken from the aggregate school of all the philosophers. So Tertullian just takes all the philosophers together and he says they share in common the denial of the restoration of the body. And so here's Paul addressing this error of the philosophers or of the spiritualists. And he establishes the general theme of the inseparable connection between us and Jesus Christ, between his resurrection and ours. Put in its simplest terms, beginning with verse 12, the argument goes like this. If there is no life after death for us, then Christ didn't rise, and all Christians are to be pitied as the most miserable of all men. So it's the testimony of God through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit who always speaks perfect truth that there's an inseparable connection between life after death 
and the resurrection of our Lord, they stand or fall together. It's not possible to believe in Jesus Christ without believing in his resurrection, and it's not possible to follow him without falling hard after the great hope of all believers in the resurrection of all Christians bodily into eternal life, the presence of our Lord in his Father's house. And verses 14 to 18 show us that everything we believe hinges on these two hopes. The resurrection of Jesus, our own resurrection. Without them, we are left with nothing. If Jesus did not rise, and if we don't rise, then my preaching is useless, your faith is useless, we are all false witnesses and liars. We are all still hopelessly lost in our sins And all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who died in the past are gone. How is this? Well, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb whose blood was shed for the propitiation for the appeasement of God's wrath against our sins. When Jesus hung on the cross, he bore your sin. If you are a believer, he bore your sin on his body, and his body was broken, his blood was shed to appease God's wrath against us and to bear that wrath and its necessary punishment of death so that we, through faith, might be delivered by Jesus from the punishment and death we so richly deserve. But who today believes that he deserves punishment Death and hell. As pastors and as Christians, we have been completely unfaithful and explaining and preaching and teaching the true nature of man and woman and the true nature of God's righteous decree of death and hell. Completely unfaithful. And so we are surrounded by people here this morning and people that we play soccer with, we go to school with, people we work beside, who have absolutely no fear of God. None. And that's our fault. And if you go into the Bible and you look at the testimony of the Christians, never did they fail to testify to the coming judgment. Never. You heard Paul testifying to it in the ultra-sophistication of the Areopagus in Athens. And if in Athens, you can bet in Corinth. They never failed. Never failed. And today, everything is grace. Everything's mercy. Everything's peace. Everything is about us. And we think that we have to give the soft for people to believe. Never the hard. Two things from this past week make it clear how unfaithful we are. First... This from a man who until a year or so ago attended this church. He was raised in my denomination, the PCA, deep in the Orthodox and Conservative South. 
And here is what he says concerning death and hell. He's gone apostate. He now denies Jesus Christ. And here's what he says to me in an email. He says, quote, The heart of it is that I'm unable to believe that anyone deserves unending punishment. But you'll tell me that that's because I don't want to admit how vile I am. What can I say? I think I'm... What word do you think he uses there? Huh? Well, no. No. She said a good guy. No. Close. What word would he use there? No. No. Huh? That's somebody said it. Who said it? Somebody said not so bad. Yeah. And that's, he says, he says, what can I say? I think I'm imperfect. Is this what the Bible's testimony is about you? Is this what it is about me? I'm imperfect? Who could fault somebody for being imperfect? You know what his problem is? In fact, I think he said it here. You'll tell me that that's because I don't know want to admit how vile I am. He's grown up in the PCA. He has absolutely no idea who he is. And he has no idea who God is. And he has no idea the the eternal chasm between his character, his thoughts, his mouth, his heart, and the holiness of God. And so he doesn't think that hell exists. What can I say? I think I'm imperfect, but no, I don't think I deserve to suffer eternal misery. Nor anyone else, and I mean anyone, take your pick. I don't think it's logically or judicially conceivable. And then this from Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren is a very trendy person that NPR tells us is an evangelical, an evangelical pastor and leader. So this last week or a week and a half ago, they had an interview with McLaren and and they put up on the NPR site one of the chapters of his new book, and it is godless. And I want to meet with any of you that want to come and want to go through that chapter word by word. Because there's so much going on with these false shepherds. They're so evil. But you may need somebody to open up his use of language to you. And that's what I should be good at, all right? So if you're interested in that, let me know. Now, let me read from the interview. This is up on the NPR site. I'm reading the words from their site. McLaren is considered one of the country's most influential evangelicals. And his new book, called A New Kind of Christianity, takes aim at some core doctrinal beliefs. McLaren is rethinking Jesus' mission on earth and even the purpose of the crucifixion. Quote, The view of the cross that I was given growing up, in a sense, has a God who needs blood in order to be appeased. If this God doesn't see blood, God can't forgive. 
McLaren believes that that version of God is a misreading of the Bible. Quote, God revealed in Christ crucified shows us a vision of God that identifies with the victim rather than the perpetrator, identifies with the one suffering rather than the one inflicting suffering, he says. Consider the core evangelical belief that only Christians are going to heaven and everyone else is doomed. That may have rung true for his grandparents' generation, he says, but not now. Quote, a young evangelical Roman Catholic or mainline Protestant growing up in America today, if he goes to college, his roommate might be Hindu, he says. His roommate might be Muslim. His roommate might be Buddhist or atheist. And so suddenly the other is sleeping across the room. Unquote. McLaren is on to something there, says David Campbell, a professor at Notre Dame and co-author of... American grace, how religion is reshaping our civic and political lives. His surveys show that nearly two-thirds of evangelicals under age 35 believe non-Christians can go to heaven, but only 39% of those over age 65 believe that. (laughs) And there you have it. I mean, buddy-duddies like me, you know, who say sex instead of gender who say brother instead of brothers and sisters, who say man instead of human. And only do it because we don't know what's trendy today. If we knew what was trendy, I'd say gender. And I wouldn't believe in hell. And I'd talk about narrative and story. And I'd suggest instead of proclaiming. But I'm old and I'm set in my ways. You bet. So does the Bible teach the existence of hell? Well, Brian McLaren, in his chapter of his book that NPR is sending out to everybody, all right, he says, when Jesus promises eternal life, but he doesn't want to call it eternal life, he calls it life of the ages, I believe that he is not promising life after death or life in eternal heaven instead of eternal hell. And then he says, John, it should be noted, never mentions hell, a highly significant fact. Instead, Jesus is promising life that transcends life in the present age, an age that is going soon to end in tumult. Being born of God, born again, born from above, would in in this light mean being born into this new creation. And so again, Jesus is offering a life in the new Genesis, the new creation, that is of the ages, meaning it's part of God's original creation. Brian McLaren very clearly denies the existence of hell. He denies the judgment of God. And so... We look at him, and he's an evangelical. He's one of the most important evangelicals in the country. And evangelical means Bible-believing Christian. So what does the Bible teach about the existence of hell that Brian McLaren says doesn't exist? Well, here's Jesus. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Does Brian McLaren fear the one who has the ability to cast his soul into hell? Does he fear him? No, he doesn't. Or this from Mark. Jesus again. And Jesus should know. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him, think of Brian McLaren and the people he's causing to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the, this is Jesus, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, in case we didn't get it the first time, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, in case we didn't get it the first time, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, in case we didn't get it the second time. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Brian McLaren is the talk of the town. The talk of the town. And then we go to Revelation. And here's the testimony of John. He says, then he said to me, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now think about this. If Christ was not redeemed from eternal punishment and death when he bore our sins on the cross into the tomb and down to hell, what possible hope can you and I have that God will do for us what he refused to do for his precious son? In other words, if Christ is still bearing our sins in death, we are not free of them either because he is our peace and our hope and our eternal life. Without him, we die and face the wrath of God naked in our terrible wickedness. Do you want to face God today? Do you want every secret of your heart opened up before the living God who is perfect in holiness and wrath? What man who has ever lived can stand before God? Could Moses stand? Moses did not enter the promised land. Could David stand? Could Peter stand? How about Paul? How about Abraham Lincoln? How about Mother Teresa? 
The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says that there's no place we can go. We can't go off Cash's Ledge out in the Atlantic. Nowhere to hide from God. Five miles down in a coal mine. Way up, way up in the moon. There is no place to hide from God. All the secrets of your heart and my heart, every idle word he will judge. And until we begin to open our mouths about the judgment and holiness of God, no one will believe in the resurrection of the dead. No one. Because no one will have any need of it. Why do you need the resurrection when you've got Butler? Honestly. We have resurrections every day. Every day we have wonderful things that we don't deserve. This life is good for us. And it's not until we meet our hearts. It's not until we sit under the preaching of the word where the preacher will open up to you your wickedness. Not because he's punitive and thinks he's good and he needs to show you that he's better than you are. No. I just love this section of the Apostle Paul because what Paul does is he talks about how awful he is. As a matter of fact, Calvin says that Paul is actually taking the dismissive comments of the enemies of Christ that are used about Paul, you know, that he's a nothing, that he's, 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 like, he's like the least. As a matter of fact, the word that Paul uses to refer to himself here, do you know what the word actually is? He refers to himself as what? Does anybody know? It begins with an A. Anybody? He refers to himself as an abortion. One born out of time, an untimely birth. Paul couldn't stand. Paul couldn't stand. Paul couldn't stand. And so when we come to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead... We come to verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life alone, we are of all men most to be pitied. And the reason is that as Christians, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we have lived a life of being disciplined by God because he loves us. Have any of you been disciplined in the last two weeks by God? Any of you? And you don't want to raise your hands, do you? Because you think, well, God doesn't discipline people. God is impunitive. And I say, well, have you stubbed your toe, for instance? You say, well, yeah, but that's just an act of fate. And I say, you know, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Every single person at a roundabout who stops... When no one's coming is the loving discipline of God. Every customer service person that says, I'm sorry you feel that way. Every person at a counter who says, I just work here. Every one of these is a messenger from God to us. 
to you as a believer, disciplining you. Let alone the death of an unborn child in your womb. And so why is it that we are, of all men, most foolish? The reason is that we go through life being disciplined by God. The people that we love commit adultery. The people that we trust lie to us. The people that love us beat us and abuse us. And God, day by day, year by year, decade by decade, until finally he has brought us to the point where we're sufficiently conformed to the image of God that our work is done. Not that we're perfect, not that we merit heaven, but his work, his timing for us is done. Then he brings us into his presence. Now, imagine that he doesn't bring us into his presence. What on earth is the point of going through his discipline in this life if there's no final fulfillment of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then you think about the fact that we of our own grace, (laughs) if there is such a thing, we of our own grace have chosen to give away our money. We have chosen to shut up when we could defend ourselves. We have chosen to testify to Christ and gotten booted from our Ph.D. program and not gotten tenure. All right? Everywhere we go, we have done the thing that honored Christ instead of the thing that honored us. Now do you understand why he says that we are of all men most to be pitied? In other words, let me end with this. How bitter would you be if there is no resurrection of the body and no life everlasting? I'm afraid that for many of you, you wouldn't mind at least in your brain, until you stand before the judgment seat of God. The resurrection of the body is the final gift of God to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And until that final gift comes, everything we do is counterintuitive. Everything we do is a narrative of death. And it makes absolutely no sense if Jesus Christ did not rise and if we too will not rise. And brother and sister, if you believe in Jesus Christ, every single day you should be thinking this makes absolutely no sense except in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You should just be thinking that all the time. Well, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You should be seeing yourself through other people's eyes, and they should be saying about you, he doesn't make any sense. Well, she don't make no sense. Anna, would you please come here? Come on up. No, not you. The other one right in front of you. Come on. Come on. Come on up. Come on. Yeah. So I'm preaching, and I'm thinking about people that don't make sense. Come here. 
This is Hannah. This is Hannah. And she's one of my daughters. One of your daughters, if you're a member of this church. Hannah's whole life was making a name for herself. And then Hannah got a, caught a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not that she hadn't had it before. But she caught a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ that caused her to realize that the glory she was seeking through the harp was secondary, tertiary even. And so Hannah decided that Hannah was not going to continue to be the rat on the treadmill and that she was going to go for godliness. Now, you know, everybody likes to talk about narrative. Here's... Here's narrative. And so Hannah got off it. And instead of her whole life going for Israel and the great competition, what's the name of it? Israel International Competition. Israel International Competition. That's kind of like... (laughs) It's kind of a lousy name. (laughs) Israel International Competition. Harp Competition? Israeli Competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know something? The year that she and everybody that loved her had prepped her to win that competition, that year, do you know there wasn't anybody that won that year? Do you realize this? She chose to grow spiritually and to set the harp aside. And so the year she was to win, the first time or second or third, do you know in the 50 years how many times? Only twice in 50 years did they ever choose not to assign the top prize because there wasn't anybody worthy of it. And the year she was going to compete, they didn't assign the prize. So I talked to her dad, who's a Christian physician up in Rochester at Mayo, and you know what her dad said? He said the minute he went online and saw that they hadn't awarded the top prize, he knew it was because God was reserving it for her. Now listen, people, your life is either going to proclaim Jesus Christ or it's going to proclaim your harp and your pride. And you can't have them both. Jesus Christ is not hypothetical. And he doesn't ask you to make hypothetical sacrifices. He asks you to give up a harp. And I'm not saying if you still play the harp, you're wrong. I'm just saying Hannah chose what? What am I going to say? Hannah chose what? The better way. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha, Martha. You're worried about many things, but what? Come on, only one thing is necessary. And so today I want you to think about Hannah. This godly woman who has been an example to me, of Christian faith and has died to her harp and to her name so that she can live to Jesus Christ. This is a woman who believes in the resurrection. None of life makes sense unless you believe in the resurrection. So I honor her. I'm proud to know Hannah. Mm. 
I told her she can go. Another Dutch person. Just like the Westras and the Dykstras. So let me end with two things. First, Calvin, and then my father. Calvin says this. He says, since Christ's death and resurrection, death, the death to the harp and to the competition, the death of hemorrhaging in a hospital bed. Since Christ's death and resurrection, death has been destroyed in such a way as to be no longer fatal for believers, but not in such a way as to cause them no trouble. (laughs) Hannah, have you had trouble with that death? Huh? You still have trouble with it occasionally? Not in a way as to cause them no trouble. The sword of death used to be able to pierce right to the heart, but now it's blunt. It wounds still, of course, but without any danger. For we die, but in dying we pass over into life. And so my dad wrote, let's celebrate Easter with the rite of laughter. Christ died and rose and lives. Laugh like a woman who holds her first baby. Our enemy death will soon be destroyed. Laugh like a man who finds he doesn't have cancer, or does, but now there's a cure. Christ, open wide the door of heaven. Laugh like children at Disneyland's gates. This world is owned by God, and he'll return to rule. Laugh like a man who walks away uninjured from a wreck in which his car was totaled. Laugh as if all the people in the whole world were invited to a picnic, and then... Invite them. Let us pray.